quick editor's note, I'm recording this during the day because obviously I'm still new at this, having only been doing it for a few years, so I lost track of the concept that I needed to have things recorded by a specific time frame if I wanted to be recording in my usual format of doing so in the middle of the night. This is a daytime recording session because I need to get this recorded. So, yeah, apologies for the extra daytime sounds, possibly a few extra cars. I'll edit out what I can, but just that's why it might be a little bit rougher. Anyways. Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona e this is a popular, popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 0.21e, Sayings of the Savior, Part 5. The Words of God in Matthew. All of these odd episodes are made to let us build our Pope Colored Glasses so we can use the same lenses when we look at history together. If you're lost, start at the beginning. Long-time listeners will be familiar with that introduction, and might have even noticed a subtle tweak. But the show has grown substantially since the last of our Catholic world-building episodes that used to just be, well, the Popular History Podcast. But now that Popular History has diversified into several related shows in a trench coat masquerading as a daily show, well, being so generic about it doesn't seem quite right. So, Welcome to the Solemn High Pod. Yes, if you've been listening to our Sunday epitomizations, this is the latest installment in that content I've been summarizing on Sundays. Of course, this is the non-summary edition, so buckle up, because these Solemn High Pods have a general target time of 45 minutes, and actually I can tell you, this one is going to go over an hour, because I am getting through Matthew today. Why are we doing a solemn high pod today? Because it's a solemnity. A solemnity is a high-ranking celebratory day in the church's calendar, and they pop up from time to time. When they do, or perhaps a day or two before they technically do if they conflict with something else I have on the schedule, it's time for another solemn high pod. Today, August 15th, is the Feast of the Assumption. I could make jokes about the name, but frankly, that fruit's too low-hanging to be particularly satisfying. The Assumption commemorates Mary's going up to heaven at the conclusion of her natural life. There's actually some disagreement between East and West on whether that conclusion of her natural life included her death, or whether she just went up to God while still living, like Enoch and Elijah. Either way, traditional Christianity agrees that she went up. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover in this episode, so I'm going to leave the Feast of the Day commentary at that. But do take comfort in knowing that I plan to talk about the history of the various solemnities as my next Sunday series, once we get caught up with the epitomizations. There will be 17 solemn high pods per year, so catch up we shall. Don't you worry. 
In the previous episodes of our ongoing Sayings of the Savior series, we looked at quite a few of Jesus' words in the Synoptic Gospels. Notably, two sermons defined by their relative elevation, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, plus all the parables and the sayings of Jesus that are closely tied to those. Add to that collection the words of Jesus recorded in the context of his miracles that we covered in Op.20, our previous series on miracles, and surely we've covered all there really is to cover, right? Well, let's go take a look and see. I like to switch things up and see what things look like from different angles using different approaches, so while before I would talk about all the synoptic parallels the first time I came across a passage, this time I really would like to do things in the order that you'll find them in your Bible. So we're going to focus on the Gospel of Matthew today. We'll look for any sayings of the Savior we may have missed, going gospel by gospel in the next few installments in this series, and today, chapter by chapter. Matthew opens with his take on the Nativity, which we covered extensively, straight up reading the first two chapters of Matthew and Luke in the The Gospels So Far supplemental. Jesus' first words in Matthew come in the mid-third chapter, and of course, I'll be listing chapter and verse of all the quotes today in the show notes for easy reference. Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. The Greg says... Note that a bit later in the section, God the Father speaks from heaven, but I'm not covering all the sayings of God the Father, or else we'd have to go back through the First Testament. So we're limiting ourselves to the words of the incarnate word. Fair? Chapter 4 gives us the temptation in the desert, which we're going to skip for now and cover in a future episode. And then we have this section after the temptation. Gospel of Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. The Greg says... It's true. I didn't get around to describing the call of the disciples in any previous episode. Here, Peter and his brother Andrew are called at the same time. There's another gospel account we can use for a tiebreaker. And trust me, the loser will never hear the end of it. We'll get to that gospel in a future episode. Again, focus is on Matthew today. Chapters 5 through 7 are the Sermon on the Mount which we covered in Ot.21b, and then chapter 8 begins with a bunch of miracles we covered somewhere in Ot.20. Uncharted territory picks back up in Matthew 8.18. Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, 
Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. The Greg says, The essential homelessness of Jesus is no joke. He lived as an itinerant preacher. Meanwhile, the urgency of his calling here is striking. Again, let the dead bury their own dead. More miracles take us over into chapter 9, in which Jesus calls another disciple, Matthew, the tax collector. It's worth noting that he's called other disciples between his calling of Peter and Andrew and now, but in those instances, his specific words weren't recorded, and we're focusing specifically on our Lord's words in this series. Anyways, let's call Matthew, as recounted by, well, Gospel of Matthew. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Greg says, Given I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is a reference to Isaiah 58, which I literally have the first word of tattooed on my throat because of how important that particular passage has been to me personally, rest assured that just because we're now five episodes in doesn't mean we're done with the good stuff. These are still the words of God incarnate. At the end of the chapter, we have the appeal included in just about every appeal for religious vocations. Gospel of Matthew. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The Greg says... In chapter 10, Jesus gives a long list of instructions to the twelve apostles, now fully assembled, as he sends them along their way. We'll see how long I can manage to let God speak before I interrupt him this time. Gospel of Matthew. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The Greg says, Well, the answer to how long I can keep silent is apparently three verses, because I think it's most important to dwell on the verses I find most challenging, to counter any effect my own biases might have on our review. So let's repeat that one for extra emphasis, then carry on with the rest. Gospel of Matthew. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, 
and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. The Greg says... In chapter 11, the conversation turns to John, which is fair enough, since it's ultimately John who starts the conversation. Gospel of Matthew. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. The Greg says... Notice here Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. That's the thing he does. And like everything else, it is, of course, a reference. I don't want to dive into it because we'll be here forever. But uh, just know that the Son of Man equals Jesus when you see it in the New Testament, especially when Jesus is saying it. Anyways, soon Jesus expands his condemnation of those rejecting John to condemnations of whole towns. Gospel of Matthew. Then... Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. 
For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sidon, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The Greg says, I'd like to apologize to any of my listeners hailing from Chorazin in Bethsaida. Jesus' views on you do not necessarily reflect my own. Then again, given our Pope-colored glasses, I guess they actually do for the purposes of the show. So, uh, you might as well repent. Jesus finishes off the chapter on much friendlier notes. Gospel of Matthew. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All these things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Greg says, Ah, yes, cuddly Jesus is back. Spoiler alert for tomorrow's episode, but I can definitely see where Sean was coming from with his multiple Jesuses theory, though I don't believe that myself. All sorts of folks are full of apparent contradictions. Chapter 12 starts with a section that might feel somewhat familiar, because it's the prelude to a scene where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in a synagogue on the Sabbath. In it, Jesus begins to challenge the law as it was understood by the religious authorities of the day, something he would do more than once. Gospel of Matthew At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Greg says, That backdrop certainly helps set the stage for the withered hand healing that comes right after. Then, after that miracle, things flow into the parable of the divided kingdom, which you might know in terms of the Binding of the Strong Man, a parable whose analysis I had previously cut short, but which we might as well complete in full today, since we're being more thorough this time. So, what did we cut out before? Well, Gospel of Matthew. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The Greg says... Now, Catholicism is quite big on giving folks hope for redemption. So, when you've got Pope-colored glasses on, 
remember that the typical interpretation of this passage is that speaking against the Spirit is typically interpreted as despair, which prevents you from repenting, as opposed to there being some sin so great you could bring it to God and have her be like, nah, I ain't forgiven that. Anyways, let's continue. Gospel of Matthew. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings up good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. The Greg says... Next up, folks ask for a sign, and they get a whole lot of lip in response. Gospel of Matthew. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. The Greg says... Finally, chapter 12 ends with a section I might have previously covered when talking family ties, though perhaps not. So... Gospel of Matthew. While Jesus was talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside, wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The Greg says, Chapter 13 begins with a strong streak of miracles and parables. Then we're back to the sort of family and hometown stuff we just read from chapter 12. Gospel of Matthew. Coming to his hometown, he began to teach the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where does this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where, then, did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there, 
because of their lack of faith. The Greg says... Chapter 14 opens with the execution of John the Baptist, a scene which has no commentary from Jesus, but it's a scene worth you hearing nevertheless, so sure, it's not like we're doing anything else today. Note that the Herod described here is Herod the Tetrarch. That is to say, he's not Herod the Great, as you might be tempted to think, but his son. Gospel of Matthew. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John, and bound him, and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people, because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests, and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted, and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. The Greg says... Well, first off, I think you could technically keep your oath without beheading. I mean, the head just needs to be on a platter. I could put my head on a platter. Anyways, uh, Matthew 15 opens with some context for a parable, specifically the blind guides, which you might recall as the thing about unwashed hands, or which you might have totally forgotten. Either way... Gospel of Matthew. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. The Greg says... Matthew 16 has the most famous saying of Jesus for papal purposes, the one about keys and binding and loosing that is written in three-foot letters snaking around near the ceiling of St. Peter's. We talked about that specific passage way back in episode one, Rocky, but there's plenty more in the chapter for us to get into today, starting with Jesus' reply to the Pharisees and Sadducees asking for a sign. Given his typically antagonistic relationship with these folks, and how he went off on the last people to ask him for a sign, you'd think we'd want to buckle up. But actually, Christ is relatively subdued here. Gospel of Matthew. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, Today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked 
an adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. The Greg says... Mic drop, I suppose. This time around, Jesus saves much of his ire for the disciples themselves, who, admittedly, are shown as a bit dense in this passage. Gospel of Matthew. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Greg says... So, uh, yeah. Again. Dense. The next verse brings us to the famous binding and loosing scene I mentioned a couple minutes ago. In the lead-up to that exchange, though, Jesus has a question for the group. Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Greg says, Not only is this passage significant for papal reasons, but it's also an important pivot point in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. Note that Jesus is shown here talking about events after him, and that's not an isolated thing. He actually already made reference to him being buried in the earth for three days, and uh, he's going to start talking more about not just the end of days, but the more immediate future moving forward. Starting with, Well, starting with the very next verses. Gospel of Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. The Greg says... Very specific. Yet, Peter is having none of it which sets up an interesting counterpoint to the exalted role Jesus had literally just assigned him. Gospel of Matthew. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, 
but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Greg says, In this short section, followed immediately on the heels of the big keys to the kingdom bit, we have Peter taken down several pegs. Now somehow, the part where Peter gets called Satan didn't get carved in three-foot letters in St. Peter's. This blockbuster chapter wraps up with a line that both sums up and fuels Christianity's status as a first-century doomsday cult, with them absolutely believing that Christ's return and the end of the world are imminent, a view that events occurring around the time this gospel is written would certainly have reinforced. I won't keep you in suspense. I'm referring to the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans in 70 AD. We'll absolutely be revisiting that and its effects as a relatively early stop on our main narrative for Project Veritas later this year. And just to be clear, I am referring to the truly I tell you, some of those who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom line. Matthew 17 opens with the Transfiguration, which is a mystery of the Rosary in its own right. So we'll be covering that separately once we actually finish these sayings of Jesus. The rest of the chapter describes miracles I discussed in our Roundup of Miracles, including the excellent one, where the money for the temple tax is retrieved from the mouth of a fish, like a straight-up magic trick. I'm reasonably confident the only words of Jesus from Matthew 17 that we haven't already addressed are his death prediction in verses 22 and 23. Quote, Gospel of Matthew. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. The Greg says, I mentioned last chapter that we'd start to see such death predictions moving forward. This is number two, and there are two more to go in Matthew. Matthew 18 opens with the disciples asking Jesus who would be the greatest in heaven. Jesus responds with an illustration. Gospel of Matthew. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The Greg says... Then, things take a turn. Gospel of Matthew. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. 
it is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. The Greg says... The next section is a parable, that of the lost sheep. At this point, I hope you know where to find more commentary on that. In the meantime, let's skip ahead to some practical advice from Jesus on how to deal with conflict in the church. And that word, church, is an interesting one to be seeing popping up here. During the life of Jesus, given traditionally the events of Pentecost, months after Jesus' death, are marked as the beginning of the church. I'm overselling that, perhaps. It is a linguistic thing. Uh, church just means assembly. Uh, anyways, here we are. Gospel of Matthew. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. The Greg says, First off, did you catch the binding and loosing popping up again? This time, not just falling to Peter, but to all the disciples? Then, we have a verse, two or three gathered in my name, very often cited in the context of church governance. It's the most relevant gospel verse when it comes to conclaves, and, though it's the Son speaking here, it's generally understood as the Holy Spirit guiding the church. Lastly, how many times should we forgive? Well, a lot. Our translation gave 77 times. Many others, apparently following the lead of the King James Version, cite 70 times 7 here, which sure sounds to the modern ear like uh, 490 if my math checks out, but the standard interpretation isn't that you can suddenly stop forgiving when you hit some magically large but finite number. Rather, the notion is apparently that you should forgive always. After all, recall my personal favorite, the measure by which you measure will be measured out to you. In short, our forgiveness of others represents our hope for mercy for ourselves. To drive the point home, this chapter ends with another parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Check the show notes for where to find my coverage of miracles and parables. Hopefully you've picked up on that by now. Matthew 19 opens with the kind of scene we've seen before, with a group of Pharisees testing Jesus. Gospel of Matthew Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, 
and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. The Greg says, First, divorce is condemned fairly emphatically, a position which, as I mentioned in the Point Twenty Sacraments series, the Catholic Church has generally run with, especially since the days of Henry VIII, which we'll get to eventually, and trust me, it is very tempting to let the king's great matter jump the line. But focusing back on the text, as I noted when I touched on this passage in the Sacraments Overview, when pressed, Jesus does drop a note of concession, saying, except for sexual immorality, suggesting, it might appear, to allow some room for divorce when a sexual immorality-based case can be made. There are nuances here, and we'll be revisiting this on multiple occasions. For now, we'll move a bit further in on the passage to where Jesus talks about three kinds of eunuchs. Those born that way, generally understood as intersex individuals. Those made that way, which historically seems to have been the majority of those described as eunuchs. And eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Our translation, which as a refresher said, those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, seems to lean intentionally away from the interpretation of this passage that the church father Tertullian would apparently eventually adopt, allegedly causing him to castrate himself. A much more mainstream interpretation of that third category is that it refers to voluntarily acting like a eunuch, that is, giving up one's sexuality without any physical mutilation being endorsed. For the record, I'm sure eunuchs of all stripes actually can still be sexual beings. But, you know, analogy. Next up, we have one of a few scenes with Jesus and children to be found in the Gospels. Gospel of Matthew. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. The Greg says, I think that's sufficiently self-explanatory to satisfy even me. But just in case, yes, Jesus is recommending folks have simple trust in God, like how children tend to trust adults they know well. Up next, the rich young man. Gospel of Matthew. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. Jesus replied, 
You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were gravely astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The Greg says, This passage is similar enough to the discussion of the greatest commandment that I was at first totally confident I had already covered it in that episode. However, well, no, I didn't, so we're listing it here. The piece that sticks out most is the part about the camel and the eye of the needle, and I will absolutely dive into that. Next episode. Because it turns out the rich young man, complete with the camel and the eye of the needle, will absolutely call for a dispersed, but still very real, Synoptic Roundup! In fact, the next few verses can be counted in that same roundup. Here's Matthew's conclusion of chapter 19. Gospel of Matthew. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. The Greg says... And that's the end of chapter 19. Chapter 20 opens with the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Then Jesus predicts his death again. Gospel of Matthew. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. The Greg says, If I had Jesus saying such things to me, repeatedly, I'd have some follow-up questions. But there are no questions, at least not on topic ones. That's possibly because, the first time, if you'll recall, Peter did have a fairly natural reaction, saying, No way, that's definitely not going to happen. In context, that read like him saying he'll protect Jesus from the promised horrible death, rather than a skepticism about the overall plan. That's not to say there wasn't understandable skepticism, as we'll see. It's just not voiced. Which is understandable, given that when Peter gave his surely not, Christ called him Satan. So the second time, we are told the disciples felt grief. Fair, it's not a cheery picture until the resurrection part, which is the hardest part to really expect. 
but they didn't voice their grief. Instead, the next thing we saw them talking about after that second prediction was a discussion of who would be the greatest among them in the next life, which honestly seems a bit gauche, but apparently they can't help themselves because they do basically the same thing again this time. Gospel of Matthew. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Greg says, The cup mentioned is martyrdom. The sons of Zebedee, in case you are wondering, were James the Great, that's the James who traditionally went to Spain, not the first bishop of Jerusalem, James, and John, traditionally of the Gospel of John, and the Letters of John, and the Apocalypse of John, which is better known as the Book of Revelation. As for the mother of the sons of Zebedee, because don't think I'm going to let those gymnastics pass without comment, tradition gives her name as Salome. Matthew 20 is polished off with a quick miracle. Then Matthew 21 opens with the entry into Jerusalem, which I'm going to cover as part of a future episode. We're not going to get into Jesus' final days on earth today. Matthew absolutely does talk about that in what's called a passion narrative, but that's all more relevant to future mysteries of the rosary, and therefore future episodes. But I'm not going to just skip over the next scene, because trust me, Jesus and the Money Changers comes up in contemporary discussions along the lines of WWJD. What would Jesus do? You'd think Jesus is always polite and respectful, or at least you may have thought that going in, but at this point we've touched on enough of the Gospels that you probably know better than to take that for granted, right? In any event, let's dive in. Gospel of Matthew Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The Greg says, This is one of very few events covered in all four of the Gospels, so we'll be revisiting it at least three more times, and honestly, probably more beyond that after this series. Like I said, it comes up. For now, just note the fury. The righteous fury, I should note, since Christian teaching holds that Jesus never sinned. The passage continues in less remarkable fashion. Gospel of Matthew. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, 
they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. The Greg says, I don't know if we covered the mini miracle mentioned in that section in our Miracles Roundup. Either way, now we did. Next up comes my favorite oddity. Jesus picking a fight with a fig tree, which definitely did get a mention in the Miracles Roundup as the sole miraculous curse of Jesus to make its way into the canonical Gospels. Right after Jesus shows off his miracle skills, the religious powers that be ask him the same question any authority asks in response to any perceived challenge. Basically, what gives you the right to operate in my domain? Gospel of Matthew. Jesus entered the temple courts, and, while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. The Greg says... The chapter finishes off with a number of parables that actually carry over into chapter 22. Eventually, we arrive at a discussion of the temple tax we haven't seen yet. Gospel of Matthew. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said... We know you are a man of integrity, and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others, because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us, then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar, or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The Greg says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. That's a line that gets remembered, and an observation frequently made in connection to it is that even what is Caesar's is God's in the end, because it's not like the princes of the world would be anything without God. So another interpretation of this passage is that it's a call to give God everything, though Jesus doesn't spell that out. Gospel of Matthew That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with the question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. 
the first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The Greg says, When looking at the fundamental doctrinal differences between Christianity and Second Temple Judaism, the general Christian consensus on the afterlife stands out. The resurrection, which was an active debate among Second Temple Jews, was not an open topic for discussion among the followers of Jesus, as his pro-general resurrection stance was on full display here. The next portion of this chapter is the exchange on the greatest commandment we used to open our Sayings of the Savior series. And then, believe it or not, there is yet another section in this marathon chapter where it's the Pharisees' turn to try to stump Jesus, and instead they wind up stumped. If this were fan fiction, I'd be tempted to describe Christ as something of a Mary Sue figure. Gospel of Matthew. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Greg says, Yeah, yeah, from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions, except for all of the times that they totally do. Anyways, don't take that too literally. Nevertheless, this exchange is fundamental to the development of Christian Trinitarian theology, making the Messiah something other than simply a son of David. In chapter 23, Jesus flips out on the Jewish religious authorities of his day. As you know by now, I'm willing to go out of my way to push back against providing any shelter to anti-Semitism. But I don't have to go out of my way to do that here, as the most plain reading of the text shows that Jesus is approaching the topic as a reformer within Judaism. Let's start with that preamble. Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The Greg says... Now, keep in mind, this is coming off that Mary Sue moment from the last chapter. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have just been publicly embarrassed by Jesus, and are also about to be harangued by the Son of Man but he takes a pause between all that to acknowledge their having been established by God, sitting on Moses' seat, as he puts it. You'll also notice, as we go, that he is condemning the same things in them 
that he condemns in everyone else. He's condemning oppression of the struggling that I dare say is present in authorities of all stripes today, both inside and outside religion. Additionally, following in the footsteps of, well, all the prophets, a strong majority of Jews would be comfortable condemning the same things Jesus condemns in this chapter. If you want to look more closely at Judaism, as we prepare for the Great Fork in the Road, I highly recommend The Jewish Story, a podcast by Rav Mike Foyer, which I sadly saw has finished its narrative, but in the end, that is how chronology works when you go from Daniel to the present day. I'll link that in the show notes. As a final observation, as you listen to this, keep in mind that Jesus and his family were all religiously observant Jews at this point. This was a critique from within, not an attack from without, and it can in no way be rationally seen as giving any support to any anti-Semitic tendencies. Without further ado, Gospel of Matthew. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, Anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, without neglecting the former. You blind guides! You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
you were like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead, and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets, and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead, then, and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Greg says, One call out before we move on to chapter 24. The call no one father bit gets used to call out Catholics since that's the traditional term for priests. You might not even remember it if you weren't looking for it. And there's a reason I decided to let Jesus finish what he was saying before I drew attention back to it. To take away from this chapter that Jesus meant to add to religious rules is to miss the point in spectacularly ironic fashion. Jesus is condemning such scrupulous rules and enforcement here. The idea of calling no one father is meant to point folks to remembering that God is the point and purpose of religion, and that those that guide us along the way are not to be elevated to the same level, since ultimately it is God who moves us to himself anyways, not our pastors. This is a worthwhile lesson, and one still worth keeping in mind. Alright, chapter 24 is the last chapter of Matthew we'll be covering today, as chapter 25 is composed solely of parables, and chapter 26 starts the Passion Narrative, which will come in future episodes as we cover the relevant mysteries. And don't worry, I'll also explain what the concept of the Passion is when we get there. Anyways, you could do worse than to pick chapter 24 as the last chapter for a long discussion like this one, as chapter 24 is all about the end. Specifically, the end of days. Let's go. Gospel of Matthew. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, 
but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The Greg says... So I just got to call that out again. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I guess that means, you know, clearly the people who are loving less are the ones who are standing firm, right? Oh, wait, no, no. Apparently, love growing cold is a bad thing. Oh, okay. I guess maybe we don't need to hate more. Sorry, editorializing. Let's get back to it. Gospel of Matthew. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy places the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, here he is, in the inner room, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. The Greg says... We'll skip a bit now, because the next passage is a parable that we already covered, specifically the parable of the fig tree. Then... The next few verses are used to support the notion of the rapture, which I'm not going to get into today because it's a recent theological innovation, not being part of the ancient teaching generally, or Catholicism specifically. Suffice to say, it's running with a literal interpretation of things. Anyway, 
Let's continue. Gospel of Matthew. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken, and the other left. The Greg says... The chapter finishes off with a couple parables. And while I hate leaving things off with an administrative note, it is nice to be able to observe that over the course of the show, you have now heard every blessed word of the Savior recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, minus the parts that you haven't heard yet. Alright, fair enough. Anyways, for the next Solemn High Pod on All Saints Day, November 1st, we'll do a similar roundup for Mark, which shouldn't take as long for a variety of reasons. And then we'll do the same for Luke, in honor of Christ the King, on Friday, November 24th. That's a few days before the actual solemnity, but I've decided I like keeping my weekend cadence constant for more casual listeners to avoid being lost. You can always wait to listen until the actual day, since when I move a solemn high pod off the actual solemnity, it will be moving it ahead rather than back. Then, starting on December 8th, we'll finally begin a proper look at John, the differentest gospel which we've only seen from miracles so far. Of course, you don't have to wait until November for more popular content, because, as you probably noticed by now, popular history is now a daily show. And tomorrow, we've got our final pre-narrative episode, that interview with Sean McFall I mentioned, discussing whether Jesus was a real historical person, followed, of course, by the actual launch of the Project Veritas narrative on Thursday, when we look at the Christian church as of Pentecost. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.